Nigel McLaughlin teaches at um, the University of Gloucester. The MA is, is the um, exciting thing there, which is really going from strength to strength, isn't it? From, uh, Nigel McLaughlin is a, also a prize-winning Northern Irish poet with five collections of poetry in print, including Cora, um, which is published by Templar Poetry, which are a fabulous press, I think, really good press. And also um, an editor of anthologies, and the one I've got here is the Portable Poetry Workshop, which is a series of essays that you've invited, I think, from different poets. Absolutely fascinating, really lovely range of poets in there. And, um, and your work's been selected for inclusion on the Poetry Archive, and Nigel was elected a Fellow of the RSA, the Royal Society of Authors, in 2005. So let's welcome Nigel McLaughlin to Ledbury. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's uh, cosy in here. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a poem which um, I wrote many years ago. Um, but when I started to write, lines from other poets used to stick in my head. And what I used to like to do occasionally was sort of argue with them. Um, and I found it was a, it was a great way of um, getting poems when you were stuck. Find a poem from a poet you like and argue with it. Um, and there's one that, that struck me from Louis McNeese in a, a poem called Elegy for the Minor Poets. And he said, some who go dancing through dark bogs are lost. And I thought, there's a cheery thought. <laughs> for, for someone just starting out. Um, so this is what came out of it. It's called Some Go Dancing. There could be emeralds, topaz... Amethysts in the sky where the setting sun makes a tiger's eye of the horizon. The light sublimes under night's arced wing like a jeweled shock of hair that springs from mountains. Nights like these she comes, a fickle witch, her red hair down, drawing me to the hills that lie outside the town and takes me dancing. I have danced with her where the moon sings, impaled in branches, or drowns in streams that dragon wing the hillsides. There are nights she leaves me to find my own way home, and I have danced down mountains through dark bogs, have never known that I was lost. Um, when I was doing my MA in uh, a lovely place on the west coast of Ireland, um, I was taught by, among others, an Irish language poet called Cahal O'Sharkey. And uh, I translated a number of his poems, um, but this one I think is probably the best job I did. Um, it's called The Green Man, and he had a, a rhythm in the language that I just wanted to catch and try and transfer, and the sort of vowel music of the original Irish I, try, I, I tried to get in as well. So hopefully, um, although I'm, I'm not going to read the original, um, you'll get a sense from this as to just how... Um, lovely the original poem was um, The Green Man You ride in from the outback on the back of the wind loose-limbed, hobnailing a storm I smell wind fresh on the gale of your breath The ooze of the bog drips the green sod of your tongue Flocks of birds sing like leaves in your hair's cowl You come inciting seed the roots fingering and bidding sun's luster to the grey face of April. 
The clouds are tangling in your limbs and birds nest in your chest, how they settle in the hedgerows of your loins. Yet you come scouring, pelting the cuckoo out with rain that drives a sheen on weed and bush and blackthorn. And when you stretch the spring of your bones, there's a bleat in the field and a creek in the meadow. Here, in this mountain pasture, the green light of your eye dives into our clay and hope is full in bud and feather. Um, sort of, I guess, sticking with the theme in a way, um, in Ireland there's quite a lot of fuchsia bushes. They seem to grow along the roadsides everywhere. And the Gaelic name for the fuchsia bush is Jura J, and literal translation is Tears of God. And uh, that sort of combined in my head with a, a memory from my very early childhood where my grandmother used to make me taste the, the top, you know, the fuchsia flower. <coughs> break open the top, and you can taste the nectar. So she would, she would dip it on my tongue to taste it. So anyway, this, uh, this is what came out of it. See them, she said, and pointed to a yellow flower blotched with red. They grew below Christ's cross. And see, she said, pointing to each stain, the seven drops of blood. See them, she said, pointing to the unopened fuchsia earrings in the hedge. She lifted one and nipped and broke it where the flower meets the pod and prizing the top end. Taste, she said. A single drop of nectar fell on the end of my tongue, surprising me with sweetness. When God cries, she said, his tears are sweet and red. I picked an open version and did the same. See them, I said. Them's little ballerinas, red skirts, red tights, and little purple knickers. I giggled, twisting each dancer into a turn and turned on a green backdrop, six pleated blurs on the stage of a wall. You'll never make a priest, was all she said. <laughs> uh, uh, Some years ago I saw a, a, a cartoon. And it was, uh, if you could picture a young William Butler Yeats, very tall and lean and artistic looking, as all poets are. And um, he was standing tearing his hair out, and underneath it it read, the Irish poet who failed to write an elegy for his grandmother. <laughs> I have escaped that fate, both of them, I'm not tall and lean, uh, but I did manage to, to write several elegies for, for my grandmother, who's a, a, a wonderful woman and who um, had a number of fire rituals uh, that she used to sort of perform. And this uh, came out of one of them. Um, the lovely thing about this poem is that only 500 pounds and uh, a cup about this size, which they filled with brandy. <laughs> I don't like brandy. <laughs> so everyone has something to drink. But uh, this is called Catching Fire. She maintained only one right way to clean the flue. Fire shoved up to burn it out, drives sparks from the chimney stack and smuts into air. Each bunched and bundled paper held to the flame took, and it flew, took off on its own consumption, rose on its own updraft. I stood fixed by her leather face, dancing in firelight, her hands clamped to the metal tongs. Eyes stared black and wide, rims of blue that circled wells, pools that fire stared into. 
I watched her push from pull from beneath them black ash and a paper smell I love still. She told me she saw faces in the flame and people, places, things take place. She'd spay fortunes there, told me mine. But I saw nothing more or less than the dance of flame, the leap and die, the resurrection of yellow cowl and jewel chains of split level flame that held within it a dance of words, a ballet of images. I heard only the music of burning, a soundless consummation of persistence, imagined a vision of my hands reddening, felt my knuckles brazing, my bones in tongues flaming. Um, quite a lot of the, the poems I wrote uh, in my sort of 20s and 30s were elegies of one kind or another. And um, this is an elegy for my uncle. I had written sort of a nine-part poem um, called Lines, which is about uh, fishing on Loch Arne, uh, a dying art, if, if you're talking about the professional fishermen who used to fish there. Um, and this one came along much later. This one came after he died. But it sort of belonged with the other nine. So when this came out, I slotted it in after the, the nine-parter so that now you can read it as, as one. But I'll, I'll give you this one anyway. It's called Epicidium. Um, I guess what you, you need to, to know about it is that um, when you're mending nets, they had a, um, well, I guess they were plastic, but they originally would have been bone needles, and they were a sort of arc shape like that. And then there was a, a sort of a bone part that went up like that. So you wound the line round, round those in a sort of figure eight motion. So that when you came to mend the net, you could do that and make a knot. Okay? So that, that's the, the, the sort of thing I guess you need to know. Um, Ned and Paul are two other people who used to fish the lock professionally. Episodium. At four years old, I'd turn up and stand and watch the line shoot a yard at a time into a perfect circle in the box. How you'd lash hooks with finger twists too quick to be a knot. Or when you sat, a cross-legged magician mending nets, all wrists and teeth that somehow missed the flying needle. I'd let fly with a head full of questions. You'd answer with a wink and nod to Ned or Paul. And I'd believe you, for I knew you knew all the green secrets of the fish. Every cold vector of the loch. The shallows and the depths where all the black eels hid and the hook-jawed monstrous pike. Always you'd take me in and guide my hand slowly through the making of a knot, again and again until I'd get it right, or show me how to patch a broken net before you'd go. And I'd watch you all down the road making for the loch, where I knew, where I knew your boat was waiting and ready for the water. Um, the next poem is one of the, the few love poems. I don't really do love poems. <laughs> I know, dramatic. But since it's near Valentine's Day, um, I thought I'd read this one. Um, I guess it's self-explanatory. The Vies. I have never been one for buying flowers. You bought your own and brought them back. Tiny yellow buds that floated in a sea of flock. The sugared water you put in kept them fresh, and after a few days their heads opened. Fold after fold of yellow petals spilled above the neck of an off-white vase. I had never noticed it, the vase, I mean, 
I disregarded it daily as it sat slightly to the left and a touch behind the television. But now as each set of flowers pass their best and end up in the bin, it sits in the room like a gap or staring at me as a stranger might, ushering me out to buy more yellow roses. Um, I teach first years and I teach them form Um, and it's a practice that they find difficult Um, particularly when it comes to variations on rhyme Um, a lot of the forms that we teach have rhymes in them and one of the, the things that we try and do is try and get them out of the habit of full rhyme, uh, to try and get them to explore rhyme a bit more, um, and the beauty of off rhyme and half rhymes. Um, so not wanting to ask people to do something I hadn't done myself, and to show them that this is entirely possible, um, I, I wrote this poem, um, and again it was based on an incident, but uh, it was more about trying to get the sound quality right. So this is called a storming. Often she would sit beside the fire when the wind was rife outside and rocked the trees that hung among the tresses of the grasses. She would sit and listen to it all as it rose and fell about the roof. A storm that pulled at the mortise lock and shook the door or squeezed between the gappy wood of eaves to invade the house. Sometimes I think it raged inside her too, and dragged the fire in her eyes like bellows into light, until full-blown in its broiling she'd go out into the night to piss it down. And I, out after her to lead her home, would find her laughing, as well she might, and her silver hair raging at the night. How are we doing tonight? Very well. Because I just keep reading. (laughs) As long as you keep listening, I keep reading. Um, The the next poem is uh, not so much a translation, I guess, as a version um, that was um, inspired by the Song of Amargain. And I wanted to get behind it a little bit. Do you know the Song of Amargain? Maybe I'd better read that one first then. Because I did a version of that which um let me just get it. Okay. Uh and this is um a closer rendering of it, Song of Amergen. I am poetry, I am fire on the brain. I am sea wind breathing you to paradise. I am inundation. I bring doom to your plain. I am breaker tearing at your rock. I am salmon strong in my element. I am seven-pronged antlers sharp from the rut. I am molten molten tears. I am the sun's extract. I am boar. I bleed savagery. I am hawk keeping watch on a cliff. I am thorn nailing the incomer. I am queen in the hive. I am the centre. I am prodigy, I bring flowers. I am one with the tree and the lightning. I am the secret of the grave diggers working. I am signal beacons spreading over the hills. I am shield who will shelter you in battle. I am spear, temper me in blood. I am the sun's bed, I am the moon's face. 
I am sea and sky, river and mountain. I am the shapeshifter. I am endless. I am the source. I am the author. What an evil secret is that? Okay, the power of the author. Uh, so this is Amrigan's song, which sort of, um, I guess, was a reaction to it or a, a way of trying to get underneath it. There is nothing linear here. Birds speak silence to the wave that doesn't reach the beach. The governance of time stands impeached by the 5 a.m. drip of moon and star into lazy sun. Time is relative. Light bends. Amorgine shown everything in an instant, sighs in a trance. The ink of his mind opens, spills to take wing from a cliff field, to soar his words, wish them to a high wind where they scatter to a different syntax. Carried where the word carries power of itself, driving meaning to the stuttering engine of the brain, sparking until what we hear is meaningless. And silence shouts unheard words to flesh, soft and bloody in the mouth, until we taste it, a prism full of colour and uncolour, the upper and lower registers of light, sound, language, until it burns clear fire in the mind, drunk, ecstatic, until the music is the instrument, vibrating in sympathy, pulsating until the word in the mouth finds unity, build in series until we become words on the wind, scatter to sky, tree, land, until they become body and blood, until we eat, drink, believe. Um... My younger boy, when he was very young, he used to sort of toddle about the place. And he had a, a sort of gait which reminded me of how old men used to walk. You know that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's a lovely word in, in Irish which is applied to children who are precocious or uh, who are, you know, seem as if they've been on this earth before. Uh, and it's called shandinye. It literally means old person. Um, so this is Shandon. I soften for you. Your toddle and how do short legging it along the path, conniving to be last in line, hands clenched behind your back, or relaxed into a wrist and kidney strut. You come with a reverse kiss and the dada dada syntax urgent with no words. Your head and heart are full of all the things you can't say yet. You connive. You contrive, you mean like hell, and so do I, and so do I. <laughs> okay. um, do you want to stop there? We have, and we'll have a couple to finish as well. Okay, well that was lovely, thank you very much for... <clears throat> I'll, I'll start off, um, I'll ask the first question and then I'm going to go like that and see who, who's got any questions. But um, I want to know um, what got you started writing as a poet or can you tell me, you know, the origins? <laughs> I want to know where the yes. beginnings were. <laughs> um, insomnia is the answer. Um, I used to work an evening shift at a factory and when I came home, there was nothing on the telly except the hitman and her. There's only so much of that you can watch. Um, 
so one evening I turned the telly off and I started to write very badly. And I kept at it. It was just a way of unwinding at the end of work, really. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I'd always been re I'd always been a poetry reader. And I'd written some stuff when I was young, you know, as a kid and as a teenager. Awful, god-awful stuff. Um, but uh, I just wanted to, to sort of play around and sort of provide my brain with something else other than that, other than the Hitman of Earth. <laughs> and after a while, I got a, a couple published. I sent a few out. Um, I remember going to see a, a poet who came to Inniskillen Library, a guy called Pat Boren, oh. Irish poet. And I brought a little sheaf of what I was writing, and I gave him to him. He sort of looked at him and he said, how often do you write? Oh, I could write one a day. He says, try writing one a month. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I took it to be the idea was that I needed to polish the military. <laughs> <laughs> Um, being Irish, I'm curious to know, you know, because obviously the, you've got, um, you mentioned Yeats, and so how, I mean, is there something you would say about that in terms of, because you do use the lang language quite a lot, so you, you would do, 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 do speaking Gaelic? I, I, I don't really speak Irish. Um, I was taught to read it and write it um, better than I speak it. But uh, I think it's it's wonderful in one way, mm. because you have these wonderful traditions of poetry that you can draw on. Um, but then it's sort of difficult in another, because you have these gargantuan figures whose shadow is very difficult to escape. Mm. And everything you want to do, they've been and done it before you better. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's tricky in that respect. But, you know, it, uh, you have a series of poets who you keep going back to. They become sort of your uh, your poetic mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, and that that's that's quite nice. Mm. Mm. I but uh, excuse me, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I see a book called Cora. Uh -huh. What's that? Does that mean what's right? Ah, right. Well, um, it's from the Platonic idea of the space where things get formed the space that things emerge from. And part of it is because I think a good poem acts like um, two electric plates. So that when you come close to the poem, you get the spark from it. So it's about that idea of space. It's about that idea of something coming out of nothing. Um, something coming out of... And you don't really know where it comes from. Um, it's also a play on the Irish word Cora, which means conversation. Because all poems are, really. Like a little one sided occasionally. But <laughs> it's all, it's all well, um, I was going to ask about the, the, a little bit more about Irishness. And, and because we over here, whoever we are mm -hmm. over here, we're all a mixed lot. But we see the the Irish, whether it be north or south, as a special enclave. And, and, oh. and I just wonder whether you're, you're, you're throwing your contribution, fine as it is, in with this English, into this English ocean, as mm -hmm. it were. 
and, uh, and, and, and yet you have some poems about your grandmother, for example, uh -huh. which are distinctly local. Yeah, and you know sometimes the universal is to be found in the local. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about the sort of feeling, um, and it's about the. Sometimes it's just what you can't describe. Mm -hmm. It's that itch you can't scratch, but you can turn it into a poem, mm -hmm. and you can create what I guess Elliot called the objective correlative. You can give them a formula so that the other person feels what you feel, mm -hmm. or has a good chance to. Um, I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, Irish people don't necessarily see themselves that way. Um, there's quite a lot of local rivalries. I mean, Ulster people would define themselves quite differently than Munster people or Connacht people, Leinster people. And even in counties, you know, you would have that sense of we're not quite like them. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk about the Welsh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, that, that sort of um, unity, if you like, isn't really something that's um, maybe as felt as much by the Irish. I mean, I come from Northern Ireland, which is in many respects a sort of pro problematic place in terms of identity, um, because how you define yourself, um, you know. If you don't belong to one particular ideology or the other, um, then it can be difficult. You talk about yourself as Northern Irish, you talk about yourself as Irish, you talk about yourself as an Ulsterman. Mm. Um, and all of those terms are loaded. Mm. And uh, so I guess you, you sort of sometimes you gravitate towards the more local identity. You know, sometimes people ask you where you're from. You say, "I'm a from Anima," mm -hmm. and that's enough. That that gives you a location, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's a pretty really nice place too. It's full of lakes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But I I don't feel particularly the tension between uh, as an Irish person who writes in English um, as a contribution to English letters, whatever contribution that might be, because. Um, I don't think the base experience of, of, of people as human beings is necessarily all that different. Yeah, I must say, you, you, I was going to write it down, I have to write everything down these days. Um, I will go home and write a poem about my grandfather that I never thought I could until this evening. Oh, thank you. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was actually in Derry. Sorry, London Derry, six counties, whatever you want, <laughs> in 71, 72, uh -huh. which was an interesting time. Yes, uh, indeed. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, since then, McNeese has been my favourite dead poet, oh, okay. I must say. Uh, bagpipe music in particular. Uh -huh. I've got to the age of bagpipe music, which is just marvellous. <laughs> it's rather big yeah. Yeah. Have you, Has your style changed over time? You, you talked about writing when you were 20s and 30s. Yeah, um, it has. I mean, I guess uh, after each collection, you want to go somewhere else. And after this one, um, it was a, a weird sort of thing. It, it, it just felt, am I going to be treading water? Am I going to be doing the same sort of stuff? So I went off at a surrealist tangent. I haven't brought any of them with me because they don't <laughs> work very well. 
Um, and I, I've been sort of playing with uh, with those ideas a bit more. Um, and you know, I, I've still got um, poems published in journals over the period, but it's trying to make a coherent collection out of it is problematic. Yeah, but is no, that, it does is change. That what you're writing now? Well, that's what that's what I've been yeah. writing most yeah. recently. I mean, I, I don't. Um, I wouldn't say entirely because there's still the odd poem that comes, which is um, pretty mainstream, pretty straight. Um, but I, I, I do like the more surrealist edge if I can get it. Yeah. Do you have a, um, a time and a place that you prefer to write in? Um, yeah, uh, darkness, um, night time. And it's it's quite a it's quite a good time to write as sort of after everyone's gone to bed or um, you know the sort of early hours if you can't sleep or whatever. Um, and I used to sort of go out walking. Uh, there's no point you know, sitting around the house on your own. So I used to go out not very far, just you know for a, for a stroll. And I, I tend to compose orally, so um, I'll have the poem sort of in my head and going through it in my head, sort of seeing how it sounds in my head and then I'll try and speak it so if you come across me wondering about it, <laughs> muttering to myself that's what I'm doing but it, it's, uh, it's a really useful way because for me the poem doesn't live anywhere until it lives in the mouth um, because there's that sort of muscular um, shape to a poem that is, it, for me is, is quite pleasurable it's part of the, the pleasure of writing it so when I, by the time I get to write anything down, it's already reasonably fully formed. Hmm. And has that changed at all, or is that still the way you find that's been a consistent... That's pretty consistent, yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. I mean, I did try to keep notebooks as people recommended, mm. and I did try to sort of write onto screens as people were like, and I just, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, it didn't feel right. Just a comment, really, not a question, but I know my family in Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. and I've tr you know, moved around a little bit of Ireland, and you conjure up that sense of the nature and the history, you know, with your grandmother talking about the... I mean, yeah. I know those lanes that are full of fuchsias that go yeah. way back, and, and you just conjured it up very vividly, so thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> and when in, in the collection, though, as well, there are there is quite a lot of poems that you didn't read, which do seem to focus on um, not exactly the troubles in a way. I was saving those for later. Yeah, <laughs> are you? Because it it is um, it feels to me like they're often on the peru a bit peru there's some which are, are full on mm. you you, vote, you know, but there's yeah. somewhere the, the, it's very much a, a peripheral or or you're diving back into another part time. So it'd be interesting, yeah. I think, to. To sort of hear a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously growing up in Northern Ireland, you can't really avoid the troubles. No. Um, you know, they were there. I, I was born in 1968, so I remember very little else. Um, I mean, I didn't live in a particularly um, bad place for the troubles. Uh, Enniskillen, when I was growing up there, was quite a, a nice place to grow up. There wasn't a huge amount of that sort of sectarian tension. There was an undercurrent, there always was, because of everything that was going on. But you got on reasonably well with your Protestant neighbours, you know. And um, obviously that all changed with the Inniskillen bomb. Uh, that, but that was really, um, you know, Inniskillen during the time I grew up in it was relatively peaceful. And 
the sense that um, you know you could pretty much go down the town and not have to worry too much. Um, but obviously, you know, the events and you knew people from different towns and all the rest of who had been through all their stuff, and you sort of knew people who had lost people and all the rest of it. And part of it is not wanting to necessarily approach specific events directly because that always felt as if um, do I have the right to do that? Mm. You know, because this is someone else's pain. Um, whereas approaching it um, more generally or through you know, a, a using a, 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 a mythic allegory or metaphor is, mm. is easier or better I think. No, I, I think it was just um, a, a sort of euphemism that became accepted, really. Westminster. Yeah, I, I think it was also an echo of what was re referred to as the troubles in the, the sort of twenties uh, as well. Yeah, it was early. I'm sure it was yeah. early. Yeah, maybe nineteenth century. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The, the term just came back into use, I guess. So do you feel like you made a deliberate effort to write particularly poems that kind of, you know, took on these issues? Or do you feel like it was still the space? Was that less of a kind of, the, I wait for the space and the spark? Or was it more that, because there is that question, isn't there, of a sort of what the responsibility of a poet is? Yeah. And that's, I think, really interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, there are times when you wanted to directly, um, but um, if you if you do, I think you, you end up with something that's too raw, mm. um, and you need the sort of space to digest what has gone on in order to find a way of approaching it that isn't necessarily just anger. And the, there is a, a sort of thing about the I in poetry, isn't there, as well, which we yeah. often um, sort of think about. And one of the things I seem to remember you saying is that you, you quite deliberately sort of try and have the sense of the I, but also the I that's seeing. That's right. And, I, and that, so there's an interesting tension in how you, where you place yourself yeah. in those things. I mean, I, I don't particularly want to be front and centre of my own poems. <laughs> Um, and I think it's, it's for me, the, the kinds of poems I like to read are where the poet has sort of stepped off stage and just allows me to see what I need to see and let me make the call on what I see. Um, so I, that's, for the most part, that's, that's what I tend to want to do, is to, to say, look, but not to necessarily poke you or prod you into what your reaction should be. You've got to trust the reader on that one. Mm. And, and it is a complicated thing to achieve, I think, because in some ways when you say an I or you give a really strong I, that's also a way of sort of reassuring the reader that they can kind of trust you or that they know that what you are telling them is something to be relied upon almost. Do you ever think that's, I'm interested yeah. if anyone else has opinions too, but to ask you first, that feeling of it's, um, how do I as a reader sort of know 
if what I am reading I can believe or trust in when uh, mm. the poet is playing perhaps a little bit on where they stand in the poem or not? Or well, I, I think poets always do. Um, the eye that you find in the poem is not really the poet. It's um, a persona they've constructed to tell you the story. Yeah. And whether that construction is reliable or not, you've got to decide. And in many cases, sometimes the eye that you speak through is not a particularly pleasant eye. Right. Um, and in some cases, you've got to allow the speaker to hang themselves, as it were. <laughs> Do you think sometimes that gives other people permission to agree with you? Or just, you know, if you say I, then it can become this sort of, oh yeah, I can say that now. Or, or I disagree, you know, you sort of inviting discussion. Possibly. Um, I, I think that um, people are free because they approach a poem. I, I don't know who's reading it. I don't know what they're taking out of it. And I don't know whether they're, they're going, well, that's not how you see the world. But that's fine um, because we all see the world differently anyway. Um, so sometimes if, uh, if you have that conversation, it'd be quite interesting. Um, you know, where people will say, here's what I took out of that poem, and you sort of go, that's not what I put there, but, you know, if that's what you <laughs> took out, great. Or maybe it was what I put there, and I just didn't know I was putting it there. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think poets are, are not always entirely in control of their own meaning. I think they like to think they are, and I think they, they like to try to be. But uh, things creep in unbeknownst to you. And, and when you're editing, does how does that play into? Because you said mm -hmm. because you compose very much um, by hearing it in your head, yeah. and then that you actually don't tweak an awful lot afterwards. But then coming back and gathering things together, or do you? I mean, do you? How much do you <laughs> wrestle? Quite a bit. Um, I mean, the it, it varies from poem to poem. I mean, sometimes you just get the gift of a poem, it's mm. just there. Mm. Um, but most of the time there are changes where you're looking for the right words, the word isn't quite right, the line breaks are not what you want, or you feel you could do better with them. Um, sometimes it's about the structure of the poem, mm. sometimes the poem wants to be something else, and um, you're arguing it into a shape that it doesn't want to be in. So sometimes you've got to just go back and say, okay, this is what I would have wanted, but where does this actually seem to want to go? Um, and, you know, allow it to a little bit. Um, I mean, I'd, uh, cutting is uh, what I do most of, really. Uh, <laughs> and that can take a long time. I mean, I, I published a poem, um, one of the early, early poems I published, and uh, it was, I don't know, page and a half. And by the time I, I sort of got finished with it, it was down to about 10 lines, maybe 12. <laughs> so it, it was quite a bit of just, this isn't necessary, this isn't necessary, or why do I need to tell them this? Let's see if I can make them think it. So, you know, you're trying to think about your reader as well. And, you know, I, I think a good rule of thumb is always to credit your reader as being much more intelligent than you are. <coughs> and you can't really go wrong. 
It's usually up there. <laughs> You're talking about this <coughs> latest book as being a collection and selected, etc. Was it just a cut and paste, or did you go through, no, it wasn't, through no. each of them and mm -hmm. say, hang on a minute, Yeah, I've seen now that where that is taking me is not where I wanted the reader to go? Yeah, uh, I, I do fiddle, um, and I do change poems from sort of first publication in a magazine site to when they come out in book form, and I did do um, a sort of going over of the, the previous books um, mm. to sort of see if I was still happy with them, and if I wasn't, uh, what I could do better because poems are largely the best you can do at the time mm -hmm. and you know it's, you've got to draw a line under them somewhere um, and sometimes these kinds of things give you the opportunity to sort of go back and look again um, 10 or 15 years hence. Just going back to your talk about your juvenilia mm. in your late teens, I mean I'm sure there's not many have survived, but have any of the of the thoughts or the ideas or the directions that some of those poems were taking you? A couple of them, a couple of them, a couple of them survived. Um, a couple of them are in here, um, changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, the kernel of them uh, is you know right from the very start. So yeah. Mm. Yeah, because it can feel like the, that original energy of particular periods of mm. time in your life are so vital, aren't they, to to kind of keep yeah. that, keep po poking away at and working. Well, that's right, and you know it, it's a process, and you 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 just keep trying to beat it into a better shape, really. Um, and I mean, there's not many. I think there's maybe two or three that made it from very early days into into that. And how, how about this feeling now of being living here for such a long time? Because you're so, I mean, there's so many wonderful places mm -hmm. are here that I don't know Ireland, so I don't know. But I think, um, how is it? Do you feel like, are you at all, what's happening as a poet when you leave a place? Because poets often are so rooted, I think, in yeah. that rootedness stays maybe, or maybe it gets more strong. I don't know. Um, I, I think it's... The place that you come from, you never really leave. Mm -hmm. I think that stays with you. Um, and I, I don't think you can ever really escape it. Um, because so much of your memories and attitudes as a person and the people that you knew, um, whether they're still there or not, are still with you. So you sort of take that with you wherever you go. Um, and, you know, it's... It's interesting, I mean, when I, I started looking for teaching jobs, um, I didn't want to go to a big city, mm. because I'm not a, a city boy at all, mm. and I come from a small town, so um, I, when I went to, to Cheltenham, I really liked the feel of it when I went for the interview, and when I sort of went to uh, the place where I live now, Churchtown, again, it's, it's, it's quite small, and, you know, greenery is, is mm. not far away. Mm. Um, but one of the things that actually sold um, Chatham to me was coming out of the B&B &B the morning of the interview and someone passed me on the street and spoke to me. Oh. Uh, this is all right. <laughs> <laughs> I can be here. It's funny, it's just sometimes it's, it's the small things that sort of can change how you think about a place and how you feel in a place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
it was also I mean, it was a nice time of year. I, I came in the spring and it was absolutely glorious. Yeah. <laughs> it was lovely. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, it doesn't make sense of it that you write outside because there's so much weather in this book. I have to say, it's a book of storms and winds, and it's just <laughs> sorry. Somebody had no, a question. Yeah. Say, you you wrote that poem to demonstrate that you could do you know about form. Mm -hmm. Do you find teaching actually helps you in your work or, or has changed the way you write to become a teacher? Um, I don't think it's necessarily changed the way I write. Um, it's sort of changed the way I think about writing. Uh -huh. Because obviously um, my job is to take poems apart and to try and sort of show students how the various parts of the engine fit together and how you make the motor run. And um, so you, if anything, it's sort of, when you go to read poems, um, you're always mentally dissecting them. Um, so maybe uh, it's changed how I read, so it probably has had an effect on how I write. Um, but I tend not to sort of second-guess myself until I see it on the page. Then I'll start to dissect. <laughs> Do you have any other questions before? When you're teaching... Form. Mm -hmm. Do you ever start with the form and say, yeah. write me a sonnet? Yeah. That's exactly what we do. Um, because there, there is there's only one way to learn how to hang a door. You've got to go and hang a door. So I can tell you um, what the features are. This is what you need to include. This is how you need to structure it. But until you go and actually try and do it, um, you don't really grasp how the structure works. I think. So, do you think that's a necessary stage? Yeah. That Absolutely. We recent poetry well, goes through. I, yeah, I mean, um, I guess it was how I learned, um, and it's certainly the tradition I, I sort of came from. The poets who were influences on me. That's how they uh, tended to approach it. Is you know, learn form. Give, give yourself something to pet yourself against. Do, do you meet resistance to that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be... No one's expecting people to produce publishable work for the first song that they write. But what you do want them to do is get a feel for how it hangs together as a sonnet. And then what can you do to, to loosen this form, to make it malleable, to, to make it uh, work for you? So, you know, we teach form in the first year. So when they come to us, um, you get a, a lot of... When they, they try and write in form, it becomes very sort of Victorian, Keats-like maybe. Mm. Um, so they, they tend to sort of regress back that way. So you've got to then try and say, okay, but here's how you can make the form work for you now <coughs> in the way that we speak now, in the way that the rhythms of our language work now. Mm. Um, so it's... it's I guess jazz, it, isn't it? You learn the instrument. Exactly. And, yeah. and one of the first things I tell them is form is not a cage. It's a skin. Mm. Um, and it should breathe with you. Mm. 
and it's not a cage to box you in. Yeah. Although I do like Austin Clark's quote, which is, uh, he was asked what kind of poetry he wrote, and he says, I load myself with chains and try and get out. You've got to learn the rules yeah. before you know what you're breaking. Mm. Yeah. Insofar as there are rules anymore, but, you know, let's say learn the structures before you, you can see how they can be broken. Yeah. So we, we go through sonnets and villanelles, tartaremas, sistinas. Yeah. Any final question before we have a... Have you ever been to quite a challenge that you might have? Um, writing. Define haunted. Does it let you go? Um... Yes-ish, in the sense that um, I get haunted by poems that I wish I could have made better. The ones you finished. <laughs> well, <laughs> finished with me, put it that way. They're finished with me. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, the, every poem is, is one of those things where you're, you, you make the best job you can mm. at the time. And sometimes you sort of go... I wish I could. I, I, you don't even know what's niggling at you. Um, but you know that maybe something's not right, but nobody else appears to notice it. So you just, okay, maybe it's just me. Yeah. I'm haunted by other people's poems. The, the jealousy gland. <laughs> you know, how did they do that? Why can't I do that? <laughs> Let's hear a, hear a couple more yeah. poems to finish. It's lovely to finish with. Okay, well, um, this one is called Bomb. They're washing away the blood today, and tomorrow the funerals will start. The rumour mongers have fallen into an enumeration of bits and body parts. All that was found of so-and-so, what him up the road was missing. The difficulties in trying to identify and separate what belonged to who. I sing dumb and tut and shake my head or try and change the subject. I know the process you have to go through, looking at scraps of clothes or a shoe, for some form of final proof. But I can't tell them. Sometimes it's better not to know that in the end you bury nothing or next to. Um, on a lighter note. Uh, <coughs> This one is uh, is called Chorus, and again, it's just trying to capture that feeling that you go out on a really sort of fresh winter's morning, and you step out into the air, and it just enlivens you. Um, so this is this is Chorus. A thousand webs barely contain the green thrum of the hedge, and the night drop dregs of silver burst in the mouth, reek like zest. The eye irradiates with a clamour of birds blackening into horizon. Colour begins a slow thunder across the sky, multiplies and changes, sings in bird throat to the beat of wings. The air hives with birth, vibrates out of shadow. Everything burns, everything rings, including me. The great bell of the world vibrates, and I am drunk with winter shine. The concrete blazes, the red tang of seven o'clock, and the vein belt of walking brazen to the frost leaps through me. An hour before petrol stink, and the shrink of people diminishing into a rush. Here, in the open-throated song of morning, 
I am in the clear. The, this one's called Nightfire, and it's, um, again, it's one of those sort of poems that emerge just out of a, 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 a sort of an incident, a happening, uh, a moment um, where you just want to try and give that moment to other people. So it's called Nightfire. Nightfire and a frost of sweet winter air, goose pimples at the window and my skin. Bitter warm coffee in the mouth bursts in the gullet, sings like a glow inside. Outside the moon is just risen over the horizon of a hedge. Stars break neck above the yard square, hedged eight feet high on all sides. The three-walled three dark shadows my claustrophobia. The city glows around the bowl of the sky. I circle the bonfire under the cone of starlight, name the familiars. Keelan sees something else beyond the rim of heat, an expanse opening up full of planes and helicopters, dark and twinkling and rockets I don't see. He is lifted upon, up on the wing of a cuckoo he invokes at the end of each incantation. He numbers us all on the wing, draws us all up where he stands at my shoulder. Ewan raises one finger, points into the void, shouts out into the vowel of the sky, and that too is open-lipped, hemmed on all sides by the red horizon that stretches out and rolls back. As we all stand amazed, raising one finger Adam-like towards a god as yet unnamed, trying to guess what it is each other sees. Sky, I say. Moon, says Keelan. Star, says Teresa. Oh, says Ewan. Oh, he says again, but sure. <laughs> Kids are wonderful for that because it, you know, it's some really interesting stuff. Um, have we got time for one more? Or? Yes, let's have one more. Okay. So again, this is uh, called Snapshot, and it's uh, um, it's a villanelle. And again, I not to be guilty of not having written something I'm asking others to do. Uh, <laughs> Snapshot. The light changes. It flashes the road to sepia in the mirror. A backward glance at the kids show they're sleeping, and an old man pushes a bike. The light changes it to a skeleton of black lines, changes him to a black line in the mirror. The backward glance of sunlight off the road glares the whole picture into a monochrome. The light changes. It changes the old man, bends him into his grandfather, a picture postcard in the mirror. A backward glance a hundred years ago. Nothing changes. Time fragments like a flash and gleam in the mirror. A backward glance. The light changes it. So thank you, Nigel, for such a lovely, generous conversation full of lovely insights. But also I get that sense of somebody sort of open to being played upon by the world, which I find very exciting, and that really comes across in the poem. So it's a pleasure to hear you speak them, actually. Well, thanks very much for the questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.